we get to experience shattered expectations. How important it is for us to have our expectations shattered when they're not in alignment with Your Word. When we misunderstand who You are. We misunderstand what it means to be a creature in Your creation. We misunderstand what, it, what the fall has caused. And then we build up in our, and erect our life in a particular way. Expecting the outcome to be a certain way. And then that all comes shattering down upon us. How often we experience that, Lord. Because we walk away from a simple understanding of what it means to be in Your world, a fallen world, that requires redeeming. So I pray this time together will be a blessing to my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that You would help me in the declaration of Your Word. That I would rightly divide it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ecclesiastes. Why is this my favorite book? In conjunction with Job. I think Greg did a wonderful job explaining that this morning. We all experience trials, tribulations, challenges, frustrations. We have plans, right? As we have set out our intentions in our day, uh, set out in our life, we have expectations that we build for ourselves that ends up coming crumbling down when it gets shattered, right? Um, all of us go through that. Greg did a wonderful job explaining that more. Our confession deals with that. How do you reconcile the way things ought to be? And we know deep down inside our hearts that things should be a particular way, and yet they're not. And I think that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is for. It's for us. It's a, a cold splash of water in the face to wake us up and to, to snap us back into reality. Uh, we all need that. And I think that's helpful. So when I thought about a book that we could go through together, I thought, you know what? We need some cold water in our face every once in a while to ground us and bring us back into reality. Right? We get caught up in the madness of life and the madness of the world. But the author of Ecclesiastes wants to remind us that you need to be woken up from that. Uh, we all do. We all need to be reminded uh, of our relationship with our Creator. Our relationship with the the created order around us, and the reality that it's fallen, and the reality that things don't always work out the way that we expected them to. Okay, so let's let's do a little bit of uh, orienting ourselves. Okay, so the book of Ecclesiastes is part of the Bible's wisdom literature, part of the Tanakh. So if you understand the Hebrew separation of the scriptures, the Tanakh is, uh, and it's T A. N-A-K. Uh, and it's, it's an acronym that describes the, the division, the Hebrew division of the Old Testament. Uh, the T stands for Torah, which is the law, right? The first five books of the Bible. Uh, the prophets, the Nevi'im, uh, which is the N, and the K is the Ketuvim, which are the writings. Jesus actually references these at the end of Luke. He says that all of the law, the prophets, and the writings, those are those which speak of me. So the Hebrew division is the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. This uh, book falls into the Writings and it's part of the Hebrew wisdom literature. We want to ask ourselves who wrote it. If you notice here in the very beginning of Ecclesiastes in verse 1 here of chapter 1, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. This is someone speaking as though they want to share something with you. It's a, an, a voice that is not the actual writer itself, it's a, or the, the voice of the one whom, whom we'll hear, which is the teacher. 
It's the author of the book saying, here's what the teacher has to say. Look in um, chapter 12. Flip over into chapter 12. I believe it's verse 8. In verse 8, it says, Vanities of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And the author wants to remain anonymous. He does provide some insight as to who he is. He calls himself uh, a son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Many believe, based on the, descri- the later description here in chapter 1, uh, particularly, I, the preacher, have been given king over Israel in verse 12, and applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. And then also later in verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Would uh, align with the description given in Kings about Solomon. Uh, he was wiser than all. It got, it's something that God acknowledges in him. And so when we think about the author here, the author is trying to tell you, hey, listen, there's a words of a wise man that you need to hear. And his name is the preacher, the koaleth. Uh, the koaleth is just a description of someone who is speaking to a gathering, a collection of people. Okay? So in your, in your uh, translation, you might have teacher, you might have preacher, or just koaleth. And what the author wants to show you is his discoveries, his observations of life under the sun. And in the end, he provides, the author provides a conclusion uh, to the reader. Okay, he says, okay, after we've heard the preacher, we've listened to all of his words, that's what you're finding in chapter 12, verse 8. There's a conclusion that I want to give you. I don't want to leave you in despair, the author says. (laughs) You need to recognize that this is not the end of all things. However, if you were to live your life alone under the sun, this is what your conclusions would be, says the wise preacher. And he concludes, true wisdom is to recognize that all of life is worthless and meaningless apart from God. All right. uh, we find that as an example right, uh, in Proverbs 1.7 and then 2.9-12. Proverbs 1.7 says what? You guys are all familiar with it. We, we probably share this hundreds of times. I know I have throughout my teaching, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and, destruction, and instruction. So there's, there's a, a positioning that we have to have in order to be a wise person. A correct understanding, a paradigm that we have to operate in. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? If you were to define wisdom, I think it can be easily defined as applied knowledge, rightly. A rightly applied knowledge in the created order. So wisdom is gaining knowledge and applying it rightly in the world around you and in your life, right? Very simply put. Proverbs 2, 9-12 through says, You will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul and discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. Think about that. Think about all the key words that are brought out here in, in Proverbs 2, 9-12. through It says, you have wisdom, you have knowledge, discretion, understanding. These will all guard you. They will be your defense. Proverbs 1, 32-33 says, the simple are killed by turning away and complacency of fools destroys them. 
So you have the opposite mirror image here. Right? Whoever listens to me, wisdom says, will dwell in secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So there's a positioning, a right understanding of reality around us. However, what the, the Koaleth wants to say to us, the preacher wants to show us and demonstrate to us, as he do, does what I would consider an internal cr- critique of life under the sun, is he wants to show us that you will never accomplish those things if you only have that vantage point. If you live life alone and you examine it under the sun alone, you will never arrive at those conclusions. So then what we want to ask is, what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? What is the purpose of it? So as part of the wisdom books, uh, sandwiched in with Proverbs and Job, it was written with the chief purpose to humble and ground its readers in reality. To recognize that the good life in God's created order is broken by the fall. So think about that. You have expectations. If, if you're familiar, if anybody's done, done an in-depth study of Proverbs, Proverbs has a tendency to be optimistic, doesn't it? You live this way, you do this thing, and this is what will happen. Right? The one plus one equals two factor. You live a blessed life, you will reap blessing for the most part. Most of Proverbs is very optimistic. Ecclesiastes is an incredibly dark book. You guys spent some time in Ecclesiastes? You're a little blown out by the, by the end of chapter 11. You're like, whoo! I don't know if I like you know, the teacher, the preacher. Man, I'm having a hard time with this. It is rough. I think it's actually, aside from Job, the darkest book in Scripture. The most depressing, as a matter of fact. You, you, you get to chapter 11 and you, you, need, you need to come up for some air. It's like your head's been held underwater for a really long time. Right? But here's what's really interesting. Uh, let me give some illustrations. I was trying to think of some good ways that we can point to what I believe the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to get across to us. Have any of you, let's say, okay, let me use a really good example. Anybody love Lord of the Rings in here? Look at that. Okay, there we go. Some Lorders. Love it. Okay, so Lord of the Rings. Anybody read the books? Okay, so when you read the books, okay, think about this. You read the books. You love the books. Tolkien has a way with words. Incredible. Amazing writer. And then you go to watch the movies, right? So the, the previews are coming out and the expectations are high. There is a new preview coming out about the uh, founding of the rings, the, the, the making of the rings, okay? And there are high expectations, us, us uh, Lord of the Rings fans. We have incredibly high expectations for what this should be like. But if any of you have read the books, your expectations are even higher. Uh, what was your response like when you actually saw, for instance, The Hobbit for the first time, when they broke it up into three movies? We got thumbs down back there, right? Why? Well, you read the book, and then you went and watched the movie, and you're like, man, these guys didn't give any justice to what Tolkien wrote in the books. They missed all of these details and these details. And he builds so much more here, and he provides us way more insight about this groups of people and these groups of people or this scenario, this scene. And they just made that weird. Why did they even do it that way? What happens is you have these built-up expectations about what the movie should have done, and the, and the, uh, the maker, the producer, the writer of the film says, well, I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. I'm going to give you my rendition of it. And it's highly disappointing. Many people might have experienced that with the second set of Star Wars movies. Many people might have experienced that in the Marvel series. Anybody seen the Eternals out there? Right? Okay. Horrible. 
big boo. Think about things that we do in our lives uh, where we set up expectations about maybe, okay, single folks, you ready? Marriage. Marriage. You have this idea about what marriage should be like, what it'll be like. Uh, who's been married any uh, beyond five years? Beyond ten? Twenty? Keep going, right? What would you tell for those who have been beyond this period of time in marriage? Let's say five and on. That's a good number. It's a round arbitrary number. What would you tell these folks who are engaged, single, looking for a spouse? What would you tell them? Think about all the... What, what, they, they're sitting across you with their eyes bright. and They're like, I just want to be married. <laughs> right? Greg brought up in his example today in Sunday school, what did he say? He says, uh, I've been married for what? Was it, how long is it now? Eight years, right? But feels like 30. Right? And you sit across from them and you go, sit down, kids. I have something to share with you. Okay? It's not all peaches and cream not wonderful and fantastic like you might think. And then you throw kids in the mix and bro, do I got some words for you. Right? (laughs) Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Life on the farm is not what you think it is. Okay? Right? Amen. That's what I believe the author of Ecclesiastes is doing. Hey, I found this wise old soul. Let me just say, um, I think think it would be a character similar to Job. found this wise old soul who has walked with the Lord for years and has experienced some pretty tragic things in his life. And he's looked around him, uh, around him for a while and he's lived a life long enough to recognize and is walking with the Lord long enough that all the expectations that we build up for ourselves are not quite what they're made out to be. You might have an idea of the way things should be, but really this is how things really are. And unless you possess his vantage point, unless you understand what, what he's gone through and what he's trying to do is ground you in a reality that life is not all what it's cracked up to be under the sun. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, Paul alludes to this in Romans 8. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But then he goes on to say, For creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, speaking of Adam, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Something happened to creation, the created order, at the fall that we need to be aware of. Things don't always work out the way that we thought it would be. Proverbs provides this blessing on the other end of living the blessed life. It says, you know, as long as you live in this certain way, you can experience certain blessings. But we know that that's not the way it always works out to be, right? What do we see out in the world? Injustices. We don't see people being treated fairly. Particularly the unborn. When I brought up the bill, the recent bill that's being brought up. The language inside of that bill, look it up guys, HB 221079. If you have not listened to our live stream that we did on Wednesday, Greg and I did a live stream together. What's really interesting about that bill as we go through the language in it is it brings us back to what? The created order. These people are made from the point of fertilization till the point they die in God's image. It uses language from Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And, it's, and, it, and so it's grounding us in the created order. And then what does it go on to say? We will not be able to obtain a peaceful life, an equitable life for all. Society will be broken unless this is changed. 
the bill is trying to reorient our society around the way we ought to live in wisdom. Right now, as a society, as a culture, you embrace death, chaos. What this bill is trying to say is, as a leader, um, as kings uh, who are leading righteously, and we, we use that language interchangeably with those in political power, we say you need to reorder things and reorient things, laws and a legal system, around the way God's designed things in righteousness. And unless you do so, chaos will ensue. There will be no peace, no health, no equity for all in society. But we know that the creation was subject to futility, so there should be some expectation that it won't always work out the way that we hope for. We have high expectations of this bill. But what can I almost guarantee, and I'm not trying to be negative or pessimistic about this, there is a process that this bill must go through, and we're going to go over that uh, next week. What does it look like when a bill is submitted in the House? Uh, What process does it have to go through? At what point does the public get involved? And how can we see this bill through? You know what I almost guarantee? It's going to be killed. Almost like the moment it goes into hearing. The moment session starts, they're like, they might not even, they might even bring it out. Why? Because it's some pretty difficult language for people to wrap their minds around. It might be hard for people to hear. Really tough, especially pro-life groups. And I say that interesting enough, pro-life groups are the, some of the key uh, perpetrators of killing bills that are abolition-oriented, which is really interesting. Why? Because they have been working for you know 40-some-odd-plus years, maybe close to 50, uh, since the 70s. What is it? 70, 73, Greg knows the numbers. Since 1973, near 50 years, right, of trying to implement incremental bills to um, reduce the amount of children that are killed in the womb. And then an abolitionist bill comes out and says, no, that's a criminal act. Children should be protected in the womb from the point of fertilization until they're born and all the way until they die, just like anybody else you know, in society. And that's a criminal act. Well, pro-lifers don't want to see women treated as criminals. They believe that they're victims. And what we're saying is we need to reorient ourselves. There's expectations that we have set in place built on the the pro-life agenda and incrementalist bills uh, that need to be crushed. Those need to be changed. The woman is absolutely a criminal for killing her child. And that's really hard for people to hear. That'd be one example of many. So again, although Proverbs gives us an optimistic understanding, and as we read again in Proverbs 8, that if you follow in line with the wisdom of the Bible, okay, the wisdom that's given to you, that you walk in righteousness, that you will be a blessed person. Psalm 1 says that. Meditate on God's Word day and night, and you'll be blessed. Jesus even starts His ministry out, right? Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those that. And He, and he gives a whole list of descriptions of what the blessed person looks like. They're in a direct alignment with Psalm 1. And now all is an orientation around those who meditate on God's Word day and night. They commit it to their soul. They'll be like trees planted by the water. They'll never cease from yielding fruit. They'll always be fed. They'll have the proper vantage point and perspective. However, the author of Ecclesiastes wants to crush the expectation that there will always be blessing on the other side of that. Now we have to ask ourselves a question. Is what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes, let's say it's Job, sitting across from us at the table, ready to crush all of our expectations of life. Is he just? Let's say we just met Job at the end of 
uh, at the end of Job when God blessed him and actually gave him a new family, right? Um, added to his wealth again. Let's say we're sitting across the table from 20 years removed from that experience. Okay. What do you think Job would say to us? He would say a lot of things very similar to when we say things like, um, well, I expect that in due time as I continue to do these things, that I will be a blessed man as I meditate on God's Word and I live my life accordingly. What do you think he'll say? He'll say something like this. In Ecclesiastes 9, 11-12, he said, I saw that under the sun the race is not the swift, nor the battle for the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like a fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so children of man are snared at the evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What? So God, the good Creator, the One who loves all things, allows this thing called chance to happen, chance happens to them all. So remember, here's a vantage point of a person who only sees life under the sun. And he says, when I observed everything, it just seems like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you run hard. It doesn't matter if you're super smart. It doesn't matter if you try hard your whole life and build something awesome. Time and chance happen to everyone. I observed as I sit back and I watch, here's a dude who's worked super hard his whole life. And right before he gets to reap the blessing of everything that he worked for, he dies. He's ensnared in this net and he's removed. That happened to my father-in-law. My mother-in-law was nonstop, right? You know, right before we, stood, we got married and we were having kids, one of the things that she talked about the most was how excited she was about their retirement. Right? Worked their whole life, whole career, okay? Whole career. Years put into the, into the service of the fire. My father-in-law was a fire chief. Okay, My mother-in-law is all giddy and excited. They're buying houses in different places. Got a sweet cabin in Lake Arrowhead. Got a wonderful, beautiful little home out in Morro Bay. And they're talking about their life together and grandbabies and all this cool stuff. This is before we had kids. Okay, And her whole life was set before her and she would talk about it. And then what ended up happening? Right before my father-in-law retired, he died. Everything was taken. And I watched my mother-in-law's life crumble before her and she still has not recovered. Still has not recovered. Why? Because I believe that she had an expectation that life was supposed to be a certain way and God cared about her happiness. And it was stripped from her. All of what she had placed her happiness in. I watched it happen before my very eyes. And Job would have said the same thing. Job, you know, if you guys have read Job, what happened, man? He was doing good. He was a wealthy man. He was respected at the gates of the city. He was an authority. He had all this wealth, this land. He has these wonderful families. And then what happened? God called Satan to his audience and challenged him. And Satan said, well, of course, I mean, he, of course he loves you. Does anyone not fear God? Because you bless everything he does. Of course he, of course he fears you. Fear, right? Can you imagine Satan. Of course he fears you. Now strip that away. Surely he'll curse you. And God said, okay. Go ahead and strip him of all that stuff. Take all his wealth. Take his family. Take his land. Strip it all. He won't curse me. And then the story begins. His servants come. The one that survived and said, man, this happened. And man, this happened. And man, your family died. And man, all your stuff was burned down. And man, 
this raiding army came out and destroyed everything. And man, man, all this bad stuff. And he, what? Tore his garments and what did he say? Naked I've come into the world, and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. Right? And Satan, a little defeated, returned back to God and said, Hey, uh, well, yeah. So what? You know, he didn't curse you this time. But man, I tell you what, mess with his health. This is the Jeremy paraphrase version, just in case you're wondering. Mess with his health. You know, touch his body. Take the thing that, man, like the one thing that we appreciate. I'll tell you what, I have been struggling with the sniffles and this weird residual cough for the last three or four weeks and went and stood in the cold a couple weeks ago and it came right back again. I, I love my health. I want my health back. Fighting this like sinus pressure. Greg's asked me, how you doing, man? I'm like, man, this thing in my face right here. It won't go away. And then I can hear it, you know, releasing a little bit. And it's like, oh, some relief. And then it comes right back again, right? I'm even dealing with it right now. I want my health back. Anybody struggle with health issues, health problems, long residual health problems? Brian Poitras, I know you're listening in. Please don't die. Um, Brian, right? He, he has struggled with long residual health problems as long as I've known him and even before that. And it's tormenting. Brother Barrett is struggling. He was just sharing this morning how he's experiencing these incredibly difficult health problems that, that are debilitating, right? Those are hard. We love our health. Imagine this. Job gets everything stripped away from him. All of his land, all of his material wealth, his his you know leadership because then his three homies show up and they want to comfort him, right? Everything's gone, and dude's just torn cloth, sackcloth, ashes on his head, right? And God takes his health too. And but but he tells he tells Satan this one thing, which I think is just like, are you kidding me right now? This is the loving God who loves his creatures, loves his created order. What does he tell Satan? Yep, you can, you can mess with this dude's health so much to the point where you can bring him up right to death, but you just can't kill him. Basically, the brink of death. Let me figure out the most painful thing that Job could go through. Scraping boils and stuff. I mean, the, stuff, the descriptions that are in Job are really horrible. This man was dealing with some pretty incredible stuff. And God says, His Creator, His loving Creator, go ahead and do this all the way up until He might die. But you can't kill Him. I won't let you. Job is mine. Injustice, Job would say. Injustice, Job would say. This is messed up. What did I do? I haven't sinned. You guys read Job, you know. One of the things his three friends constantly said, man, there is something that you have done that you need to repent of. You have offended the Creator. You have been living in a certain way that I guarantee you God would never do this to someone He loves who is walking in righteousness. And he says injustice, right? Look at Ecclesiastes 7, 15-18. It says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. It doesn't matter. One is living righteous and God cuts him off like a fish caught in a snare. And then there's this evil man who's doing evil his whole life and his life is prolonged. What in the world? That's messed up. And he says, he goes as far as to say, be not overly righteous, right? Don't worry about it being, don't get too righteous. Like when you're doing the churchy stuff, don't go too hard, right? You just do your church stuff, check the box, you'd be cool, okay? And do not make yourself too wise. Like, look guys, like don't spend your whole life becoming a PhD and working really hard. It doesn't really matter, okay? Because look at the, look at the guys before you, okay? There was a guy who was, who was going hard, doing the churchy stuff, did all the right stuff, and he got taken out when he was like, 
23. I mean, read some stories. Uh, we, we read some really crazy stories. What was it? Horatio? What was his name? Horatio? I wrote it down here. Huh? Nope, not, not Bonner. Spafford. Horatio Spafford. Read this guy's life. Okay? Wealthy man doing awesome. Loves the Lord. Growing and expanding his businesses. Right? Has children, beautiful children. The Lord takes his four-year-old son with scarlet fever and then takes his four beautiful daughters in a boating accident as they were going to England from America. And he wrote, It is well with my soul. <laughs> While he was traveling in the ocean in recognition of that. He is the righteous man, right? Hey man, don't, don't, don't work too hard on uh, the churchy stuff. Study your Bible, but you know, don't worry about going too hard with it and living a righteous life because it doesn't really matter. God will kill you when you're 23. Uh, and also, like, don't work too hard, like you know, in studying, uh, because it really doesn't matter. You're a blip on the screen. Generations pass. The mountains are still here. The wind's doing its thing. All the created order is doing its thing. While they're here, there are trees that are older than hundreds of generations. Right, right now, I think there are olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus walked around. Okay, there are trees in our redwood forest that that date back to the created order. I mean, it's insane. And they're going on, and you're just a blip on the screen. You're just going to die anyway. So don't, don't go too hard at it, right? Don't, don't study too hard. Why should you destroy yourself? He says. Be not overly wicked, and neither be a fool. Just kind of do the thing, okay? Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that... Withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. It doesn't matter. You could be an evil man. Greg even brought this up today. There are two people. Uh, let me let me use Jonathan and myself as the, as key examples. Okay, I came from being raised as a son of hell. My mom probably wouldn't like that I said that. She's not here today. Where you at, mom? I was I was raised that way because my father he did he didn't mentor me and disciple me in Christ. My dad's an atheist. He might give lip service, but he's a practical atheist. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in the, in the biblical God. And he even mocked, he used to mock us as we go to church. Mom would take us and he would say, why are you going? You don't have to go through if you don't want. It's your choice. So I was raised in a very blended home and had this idea of what Christianity looked like, but I certainly was not a Christian. I was a son of hell twice over again. I was. Jonathan grew up in a Christian home. Parents loved the Lord. His grandfather was this epic missionary, right? Speaks of him often. He speaks highly. And went to a Christian school. I went to public school. See the difference? All right? And he, uh, he can't actually recount when he became a true believer. He just was always one. Me, I have a distinct time. Uh, I was a drug dealer who was parting his life away and was invited to go to a church um, on a Thursday night because there was a bunch of hot college girls that went there. And we're going to go pick up with some hot college girls. I hate admitting that, but that is the absolute truth. And when I went there, what ended up happening? The pastor preached the Gospel, and I came to the faith and had a radical conversion. I can count it now. I know when it happened. It was late 1999, and I went home, and I was mind-blown. I was a changed man. understood what repentance looked like. I knew 
I was living a radically different life than what Christ had commanded of me to live. I was not like Christ, not even remotely close. I could never call myself a Christian. Jonathan was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, calling his, his, his friends out. He, he says this. This is nothing that Jonathan hasn't said, right? And he was, he was calling his friends out for living this unrighteous life in his school, right? Rebuking them, broadening his phylacteries, right? And so we come from two very different paths, and I can experience that. Both, those who fear God shall come out of both of these groups. People who are living in utter wickedness and people who are living a righteous life. Both will come out of these groups, the teacher says. And finally, death. Death comes to them all, he says. Death, time and chance and injustice will happen. It doesn't matter. And death finally comes to all. Last time I checked, 10 out of 10 people still die. Everyone in this room is going to die. That's a sobering fact, right? We're all going to die. It's not something that we like to think about and ponder on. We hate thinking about that. But what does Ecclesiastes 8.8 say? The teacher says, no man has power to retain the Spirit or power over the day of death. You will die. And this to me is the vanity of vanities. So the book challenges what happens if we, like the preacher or teacher, search for meaning under the sun and attempt to define it within that limited experience. The teacher says, Havel, and he says it 38 times, vanity of vanities. As a matter of fact, Havel in the, in the Hebrew, as I understand it, if you do a word study, that 38 times that he uses it is more than half the times it's used in all of the Old Testament. So vanity of vanities or worthlessness, vapor, breath, or wind, something that is transitory, worthless, or futile is used in Ecclesiastes over and over and over again. It's trying to demonstrate to you guys, if you live your life alone from this vantage point alone, and this experience under the sun, you will find that in the end, all is vain. All is vapor. All is a breath of wind. It's chasing after the wind and trying to grasp it. It is transitory. It is worthless. And it is futility. I'm sure you've experienced that before. Think about that. So why, why would life under the sun be that way? Why, wait a minute, Jeremy. There, there's all kinds of blessings you experience. Why the darkness? You know, why this cloud? Why are you trying to hang a cloud over us this morning? man? I, I'm coming here to, to hear the Word of God be preached and to be blessed. Right? That might have been of your expectation this morning. Allow me to shatter that. If we're limited to our finite subjective experience, okay, and what I mean by finite is finite just means um, it's temporal. Finite uh, is something that comes and it passes, okay, and it's limited to a sp specific place. Finite. Subjective just means my personal experience. If all of life under the sun is finite, it's limited to my subjective personal private experience within God's general revelation alone, then I will be pursuing a vain pursuit of wisdom desiring to lead and control things on my own terms. We've all experienced that. You want to control things on your own terms. Nothing new under the sun here, the teacher says. People have been trapped in that line of thinking since the fall. And it results every time in death and curse. And a brokenness. 
let's use let's use some examples that the teacher exposes as we go through this, okay? He exposes things like health and wealth, career success, our identity and perception with others, relationships, friends and family, marriage, right? Political power. He even goes to the environment and the future. Think about what happens when we pursue wisdom under the sun and we want to lead and control things like our health. If you just do this and take these things, you will prolong your life. We're concerned with the future and we want to avoid death, right? So if you just take these things, do these things, work through these things, exercise long enough and this, that, and the other, you will achieve a longer life and a happier one at that. Right? You guys heard that before? Uh, those are January commercials right now when everybody's making their New Year's resolution. All we hear is, do this and you will live a better and happier life. You'll feel so much better about yourself. And then what does the teacher come along and say? And then cancer hits you, bro. That doesn't matter. I see a man out there, I see a woman out there who have done all these wonderful things and then cancer. You're like, dang, dude, it's raining on my parade constantly. I should be able to go work out and feel better, eat right, take these vitamins, Dr. Willie's protocol, and I should live longer, a happier, healthier life, and then cancer. What would Willie say? Stop eating sugar, stop eating everything, okay? Right? Right. Think about this. That we can't control that. What does is, what is the, the teacher say? You can't control your life and when it comes to an end. You can't even make a difference over it. And really, he goes as far as to despair. Then why even try? Paul says something along the lines of, we'll just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't. What about wealth? I use that example. My father-in-law spent his whole life, you know, Horatio, Spafford, what, working super hard and, and really expecting good things to come. He, he is a child of God who wants to honor God in his life, raise a, a family in the fear and admonition of the Lord, loves the Lord, has this wonderful expanding business, and what happens? Chicago fire ruins it. Destroys everything. Crushes his life savings. Takes it all away from him. Then God strips him of his family. His precious little babies. I cannot imagine what it would be like if my, my precious children got taken from me. But that... That, that happens. And the teacher says, yeah, awesome. Build your wealth. Build your sweet families. God can take it all from you anyway. It doesn't matter. Career success. That's an easy one. How many people have tried to place their identity in their careers? They spent their whole life working. And they've achieved some certain status. Okay, Become the President of the United States. A CEO of a company. Uh, owner of a company. Whatever it might be, there's a status that they've achieved in their whole identity is wrapped up in it. You've seen people like this. As a matter of fact, what happens when it all gets stripped away? They kill themselves. A lot of times. They commit suicide. <laughs> Why? Because they've spent their whole life trying to put on a, per a certain perspective of themselves. They want you to see them in a certain way, in a certain light. And the preacher says, that's vanity. That's stupid. That's chasing for the wind. You'll never find satisfaction in that. God will strip it away from you even. You have all this wonderful wealth and you don't honor God and glorify Him in your life. God will even strip your joy of having it. How many people have you seen like that? Many celebrities, right? Uber wealthy people. 
They're not happy. Uh, matter of fact, I just saw an interview, interesting enough, uh, Babylon B with uh, Elon Musk, which they, they blundered the gospel. But in that interview, which is really interesting, Elon Musk is not a happy man. He always is striving and wanting more. What does the preacher say to him? Vanity, vanity, Elon. You are grasping for the wind. You will never find true joy. Why? Well, God's given you all these things. That's going to be stripped away from you and handed over to His saints. And He won't even give you the power to enjoy it while you have it. Have a nice day, Elon. Whoa! This is a really tough message for us to hear. But the preacher wants to go further. He wants to dig even deeper. Political power. You will never be able to achieve your end. Why? Well, God moves the hearts of kings like water, the Scripture says. He rises up nations and causes the fall of others intentionally to fulfill His providential will, His divine decree, which was set beforehand before the foundations of the world was, was even laid, according to Ephesians 1. There's nothing within your power. You can't control it. You can't change it. Stop trying. Stop. Just give up. It's vanity. Futile. And the future. Think about this. You guys familiar with the uh, the trans? Uh, not not to be confused with the trans, but the trans. Um, I'm trying to think of the the technical, the techna. Those who are trying to escape death and control the future through technology. What is it? Transhumanism. Thank you, thank you, transhumanist. These people, and and I've even heard my brother say this before, which is really weird. He would be super pumped if he could transfer his consciousness to a machine. And there are people working on that, building avatars right now. Human avatars, bodies that they can grow, like the movie Avatar with aliens, but with human bodies, and work on living forever. We're going to escape death by working on transferring our consciousness somehow into these avatar bodies that we can actually design and make exactly how we would want and when those wear out, we just transfer the consciousness into another one. Uh, and we can become whatever we want, whoever we want, and live as long as we want. We want to escape death. We want to control and dictate the future. Many of your environmentalists, climate control type people, want to control God's created order, are completely consumed, not that we shouldn't be good stewards, but they take it one step further. They are completely consumed with actually controlling weather patterns. They believe they can actually change what God has set and appointed. They can make a difference that much. And if you, by the way, get in the way of that, you are enemy number one. You think COVID was bad. Wait till the climate change people get their way. You will be locked up in your house because you will be destroying the environment by perpetuating the carbon footprint. And you need to just take this stuff and wear this mask and put this whole thing on because you are absolutely destroying the world around you. They want to manipulate and change and control everything to their end. But what do they do? What, is, what does the teacher say to us? Well, good luck with that. That's vanity. That's the stupidest thing that you could possibly do. This futile time that you spend here under the sun will be limited and you'll be wiped off anyway and everybody will forget you. It won't matter. Give it a thousand years when the mountains are still there and the sun's still wrapped in the, wor- the world and the, the wind's doing its thing, you'll be utterly forgotten. None of that matters. So what really matters then apart from God? What really matters then apart from His declared Word? The teacher says, and the author wants you to know before you despair at the end of chapter 12, nothing. Nothing matters apart from God 
and His declared Word. Absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, this is how we should respond along with Job. Naked I've come into the world and naked I shall return. The Lord is given and the Lord can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul says something along the lines that godliness in 1 Timothy 6, 6-7, through godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. There must be a contentment with what we have. Uh, Greg brought up an excellent point this morning in Sunday school. He said, guys, think of how blessed you are. God appointed your time, place, and habitation. Your place in history to be in America, one of the most successful, wealthiest nations in the entire world, which came out of what? The foundations of a Christian worldview. We are blessed by God's blessing because we live in a nation that has been founded, now rapidly deteriorating, in a biblical worldview. There's a blessing to living where we're at today. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness standing alone with an expe- a false expectation, you'll never experience contentment. So you must be content. How does one become content? Well, let's move on to that. Actually, you know what? There's two more passages I think are important to recognize in this. Uh, in Proverbs, we quote this all the time. Proverbs 27.1 says, Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what it might bring. You actually can't control. Jesus says you can't change anything. You could stress all you want. You can't change a single thing beyond right now. The only thing that you can control is what? How you respond. And we know, let me say this, going as far as uh, a church, Right, that we can't build anything unless the Lord's doing it. Why? Because if we try to build it according to Proverbs one or Psalm one twenty seven one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord has to actually do the work. It's His. It's all His. And until we under understand that and acknowledge that, we'll never be satisfied. We will never achieve contentment. We'll never experience this gain that Paul talks about, right? Turn with me to Matthew. Ooh, almost flipped right to it. That was incredible. Matthew 6, okay? Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus says this, something along the same lines, okay? He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add the single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing, considering the lilies of the field, how they grow? They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious for anything, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, and sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
We love that passage. But I think what Jesus is providing is what the author at the end of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to. He's trying to get us to recognize something. He's trying to get us to realize, hey, look, like our lives, eating, drinking, and body and clothing, those are good things. But that's not what's important, right? God values the animal kingdom. Greg brought up the sparrows, right, being taken care of and fed. But he values his image bearer so much more. There's a greater value to who we are and what we are. We can't affect and change the span of our life that has been appointed for us. We need to live in congruence with the created order. We need to trust and respect that God has everything under control, despite what our limited experiences are, despite what our sufferings are, despite how wealthy or not we are, despite all these things. We need to come to recognize that God is in control. We need to have trust in Him and the kingdom of God should be our future hope. In the end, God will reconcile all things. So He wants to assure that we don't despair, right? That it's not alone, life under the sun. That's not how we should conclude. That's not how we should live our lives. The answer alone is found in God's revelation. Okay? And that is, we must live a life governed by wisdom from above the sun. God's vantage point. We need to pursue God's wisdom, which is conveyed to us in His Word. Just like we read in Proverbs 8. Seek wisdom. Treasure it. It's more valuable than silver and gold. It will add years to your life. It will bring health to your body. But in a different way, spiritually speaking, we need to trust in God's leading and His sovereign control on His terms, not on ours. This alone will give value to everything that we do. We will appreciate and be content with our lives based on His provisions. It will bring order and peace to what we do in everything. It should should govern our actions to bring, up, to bring order and peace in all things. Are we not ministers of reconciliation? Bringing reconciliation of Christ. Reconciling all things through Christ by the blood of His cross. It will ultimately, the author goes on to say, bring fulfillment and joy in our lives. There are things that you should be enjoying. What Paul says, be content in all things. Godliness and contentment are great gain. You should enjoy things. Enjoy, he says, for instance, the wife of your youth. Enjoy the food that He has provided for you today. Enjoy drink and the company of your friends. Enjoy your work and work hard and work diligently. Push. Do the best of your ability. But when the things don't turn out maybe the way you thought they should have, don't trip. Right? Don't trip out. Don't lose your mind. Don't put all of your attention and focus on those things. That's not what's important. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get through to us in Matthew 6. And remember that there's a future hope that all things will be set right. He concludes in Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14. The end of the matter, as it's been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For good will bring every deed, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about and stress your health, okay? Your wealth, your career success, your identity, political powers, relationships with family, the environment, the future. When you look at the world around you and you, and you, your heart cries out for justice, when something has happened to you and you feel like, you know what, this is wrong, this is messed up, it's okay. 
Just remember that God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. And all things work to better for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. That being in Christ is really what you should relish and enjoy the most. You should be protecting an understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ, and to be filled with His Spirit. That should be your chief concern despite what happens under the sun. You've been given this vantage point that God alone has. That God alone gives you. And unless you cast your life on it, like Jesus says in Matthew, um, that unless you commit yourself entirely to it, building your house on the rock, you'll be destroyed by life's trials. That is exactly how He concludes the Sermon on the Mount. That unless you trust in My Word, unless you believe them, and build your entire life upon it as though a man were building his house on the rock, when the trials come and the tribulations come, you'll be like the man who built his house on the sand. He'll be swept away and destroyed. But those who build their house on the rock will stand firm, even though the trials come. See, it's not a matter of whether the trials will come or not. It's when they come. They promise to come. So I hope that this was a blessing to you. Uh, that is a brief introduction uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes. But I just imagine, what would it be like if we were to sit across from Job and ask him about his experiences? And he looks at us with his face, right, smiling as we're whining and complaining about our circumstances. And he just smiles and says, let me tell you about my life. That is the way I envision the preacher as he's talking to us. This book was intended to be a blessing for us. It is a book of wisdom. And so I hope that when we go deeper into chapter 1 and chapter 2 next week, that this sort of frames up what you should expect out of Ecclesiastes and why I appreciate it so much. There are two types of hearers, really, when it comes to this book. There are people who are blown out by Ecclesiastes, who get overwhelmed and depressed, and there are people who go, oh my gosh, there's someone like me out there who... Thank goodness in their words of refreshing for you. And so I pray that you are like the latter and not the former. So let's close our time in prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Ecclesiastes. I thank you for this, this work that gives us insight as an internal criticism is done of those who live their lives as though under the sun was all that there was. That we can appreciate the, evangel the, the, the uh, evangelistic power of this book. When we think about our interactions with others who reject you, who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that we can point and use Ecclesiastes as a powerful tool, a wise tool, to shred and absolutely destroy any expectation that one would have as if life only existed under the sun. That we point people to their Creator the Creator they know, the Creator they reject and suppress in their unrighteousness. That we can point to injustice when people cry out for injustice, yet they have no way of believing that justice should even be a thing apart from a Creator who governs all things and who will set ultimately all things right and began that work and accomplished it on the cross. That as people toil and, and labor and slave in their lives, over things that don't matter, we can point them to Ecclesiastes and critique of perception, of wealth, of health, of all the things that we care most about. And that we can, with You, Lord, shatter those expectations and point them to Christ, who should be our hope alone. And so I pray that 
This time was a blessing to my brothers and sisters. I pray that the Word would have its place in their heart. They begin to meditate on this work, this important work, and that we would it would draw us closer to You and Your heart. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.